Hello, my name is Randy Sheckman. I'm at the University of California, Berkeley in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. This is the third of uh, three lectures on the subject of how cells manufacture proteins for export. In the first lecture, I described the history of membrane cell biology, what we know about biological membranes, how they encapsulate proteins, and how these proteins are transferred between organelles inside of a eukaryotic cell. In the second lecture, I discussed how the mechanism of this process was dissected using a combination of genetic and biochemical approaches in baker's yeast, and how that knowledge has led to the application, uh, applications to the biotechnology industry and to an understanding of certain human diseases. In my third lecture, I'm going to take a departure and describe a rather newer set of observations uh, in a subject that, that is, uh, I think, has very exciting possibilities, and that is how cells manufacture vesicles that are exported outside of the cell, uh, and how these vesicles capture small RNA molecules. These extracellular vesicles have been called exosomes, and there is some evidence that the exosomes may mediate the transfer of information between cells, for instance, in the human body or in metazoans, uh, that may influence uh, development or may be subverted in disease states, for instance, in the um, progression of, of cancer, metastatic cancer. Well, let's begin with a description of what these small extra extracellular vesicles look like, what they contain, and some thoughts about how they're manufactured inside of nucleated uh, human cells. Well, here's a cartoon of a vesicle. This is just like any vesicle uh, of the sort that I've described before. It's a bilayer, around 80 or 90 nanometers in diameter. It has, in this instance, some membrane proteins. I'll tell you about a few of them, some of which are integral that span the membrane several times. There are small proteins and other small molecules in the luminal interior of the vesicle. But what distinguishes these vesicles from those that are found inside of cells and that are responsible for secretion is the presence of small RNAs. You'll see some examples of this over the next few minutes. MicroRNAs that are believed to be involved in control of gene expression, or even transfer RNAs or other unusual RNAs are housed sometimes in high chemical concentration in the interior of these vesicles. And these vesicles, as you'll see in a moment, can be expelled outside of cells where the vesicle may be targeted to a distal tissue and taken up by fusion at the cell surface or by internalization, by endocytosis. Well, one idea about how these things are made inside of nucleated cells is shown in this cartoon. This pathway depicted here is a pathway that is used when cells internalize receptors and deliver them eventually for destruction by proteolysis in uh, an organelle called the lysosome. The process often begins when a cell surface receptor is taken up into a membrane called an endosome. Often these cell surface receptors have a chemical tag, a small peptide called ubiquitin. And this tag protein marks a, pro a, a membrane protein for destruction. It is captured into a membrane that pinches into the interior of the endosome and invagination into the interior of the endosome that results in a small 
intraluminal vesicle. This process can continue for some time to build up an endosomal structure that has many vesicles, and this structure was known for decades uh, and called the multivesicular body. In more recent years, it's known that this multivesicular body targets and delivers these intraluminal vesicles to the lysosome, where the content of these vesicles may be degraded into amino acids and sugars, pumped back into the cytoplasm of the cell to be reused in biosynthetic processes. Now, it's been realized only for the last 15 or 20 years that sometimes, and by means that are not entirely clear, these multivesicular bodies may actually travel to the cell surface and fuse where the intraluminal vesicles now are expelled to the outside of the cell uh, as a bolus of vesicles, often called exosomes or extracellular vesicles. And as such, these vesicles may then be targeted to distant tissues in the body, uh, and uh, the molecules that are contained within them may then be internalized by a target cell to change gene expression or change signaling by that cell. Alternatively, this export of vesicles may be another way that the cell has simply of disposing of these, uh, these vesicles, not for some positive function, but just to get rid of them. Those two alternatives remain uh, viable. Now, I became interested in this several years ago when a wonderful graduate student joined my lab by the name of Matt Shirtliff, and I'm going to tell you about his work that we recently published just this year in the journal eLife. Now, many investigators who've studied this uh, problem of how exosomes are made and how they acquire their content have relied on uh, a crude method for their isolation, basically taking human cultured cells, often tumor cells, growing them in cell culture, removing the intact cells by load-speed sedimentation, taking the conditioned medium, and centrifuging at high speed to form a mixed vesicle collection of, of membranes. And uh, Matt and I felt that this purification scheme was crude and decided to try to devise a more thorough means uh, of purification of a discrete exosome species produced by a cell line that we were growing in the lab, human embryonic kidney 293 cells, a convenient cell whose genes we can control. Uh, and which was a, a convenient source of material. So I'll just summarize a, a three-step procedure that Matt devised for the isolation of exosomes secreted by these cells based on their content of a membrane protein called CD63, a four-spanning integral membrane protein that is often found in cruder preparations of exosomes that have been published. Here's Matt's procedure. We start with a conditioned medium from HEC-293 cells. The medium is centrifuged at low speed to remove large organelles and debris. Uh, small vesicles are concentrated to form a, either a pellet or sedimented onto a dense shelf. Uh, these small vesicles are then suspended in a high concentration of sucrose, 60% sucrose, overlaid with two lower concentrations of 40 and 20%. And then the sample is centrifuged at high speed, uh, where membranes, being buoyant, float up. Uh, we found that CD63, detected by SDS page and immunoblot, sediments to a position between the shelves of 20 and 40% sucrose. 
Further, Matt found that vesicles at this fraction could be fractionated, enriched, by binding the membranes to large beads onto which an antibody against the CD63 protein has been fixed chemically, so that this now affords an immunoselective purification of CD63-containing vesicles. We know these vesicles also have RNA. They can, we can detect chemically, chemical levels of RNA associated with CD63 vesicles, and we can show that this fractionation scheme results in approximately five-fold purification over the course of the several steps. Now, using this enriched material, Matt then did a thorough, deep-sequence microRNA sequencing uh, reaction and evaluated uh, some 600 different microRNA species that are found in HEC-293 cells or in the exosomes that arise from those cells. And a Venn diagram of that distribution is shown in the next slide. Most of the RNAs, most of the microRNAs, are found either entirely inside 293 cells or both in exosomes and in the cells. Some 90% of the RNAs uh, are not enriched in the extracellular vesicles. On the other hand, about 10% of the RNAs that Matt found are actually enriched in these vesicles, thus they are somehow sorted during their biosynthesis. However, even among this 10%, only four species, three shown here that are chemically abundant, and one less abundant species, are highly enriched. This species, for instance, a microRNA called MIR-223, a microRNA that has been implicated in stress response and in cholesterol homeostasis in cells, this microRNA we found to be enriched a thousand-fold in exosomes isolated from CD63, from HEC-293 cells, so much so that it's barely detected in the intact cells. And others, such as MIR-144, enriched two to three-hundred-fold. Well, that by itself was really very surprising. It says that the cell has gone to some considerable effort to sort these few RNAs. There must be something special about those RNAs, either some special positive function or some special negative function that the cell has troubled itself to sort into exosomes. And so we decided we wanted to figure out how this happens. What what does the cell do? What is the mechanism that the cell uses to sort, for example, MIR-223 or MIR-144 so uh, uh, abundantly into these small vesicles? Well, let's have a look first at some simple characteristics of the vesicles that we purified. And the first is we can look to see, in fact, how highly enriched these two microRNAs are by examining their enrichment during the course of the fractionation that Matt devised. And you see on the left a progressive increase in the relative content of MIR-223 enriched at each step in the fractionation scheme that I described. Further, the same is true of the enrichment of MIR-144. Progressively, during the fractionation, ultimately, obviously, contained within vesicles marked by their content of CD63. We can further show that these RNAs that are so highly enriched 
are inside of the vesicle. There's a simple way of showing that these things are contained inside the vesicle, and that is that the RNAs in these vesicles are resistant to degradation by the addition of a potent ribonuclease added to the buffer in which the vesicles are suspended. The presence of RNAs barely affects the chemical detection of these two RNAs. Whereas, when the membrane surrounding the vesicles is dissolved with a mild detergent, Triton X100, both RNAs are exquisitely sensitive and quantitatively degraded. So that's a simple test to show that the RNAs are both enriched in the vesicles and inside the vesicles. Now, the question is mechanism. How can one figure out how these vesicles acquire the RNA molecules? Well, if you listen to my second lecture, you'll know that what what we like to do in my laboratory is to devise a biochemical, a cell-free reaction that reproduces some significant biosynthetic process in, uh, uh, in a test tube where, in this case, membranes and cytosolic proteins are mixed together in an attempt to recapitulate the the biosynthetic process. It's a very simple biochemical reaction. We start with membranes centrifuged from the cell lysate that are then mixed in buffer with cytosolic proteins obtained from the HEC-293 cells, ATP, which is often used to promote biosynthetic reactions, and, importantly, a a chemically synthetic pure form of mature MIR-223 RNA. The incubation is conducted at 30 degrees for 20 minutes, followed by centrifugation of the membranes to remove most of the unincorporated RNA, followed further by treatment with ribonuclease under conditions where any unincorporated remaining RNA is degraded. The membranes are then collected again, ruptured with detergent to release any sequestered RNA, which is then amplified by QT-PCR and quantified to detect how much biogenesis has occurred. Let's look at the data that we obtained from this reaction and focus first on the left, which is a simple comparison between a reaction containing microRNA, membranes, and cytosol and ATP incubated for 20 minutes at 30 degrees, where approximately 7% of the exogenous MIR-223 appears to be captured. Surprisingly, that reaction was almost completely eliminated if cytosol was not contained in the reaction or if membranes were omitted from the incubation. Further, if the reaction was conducted in the presence of detergent from the outset, very little RNA is sequestered. And finally, for another control, if the intact sample in the absence of detergent is held at four degrees, basically on ice, very little RNA is segregated. So these really very crude but uh, powerful controls show that this sequestering requires membranes, requires cytosol, requires intact membranes, and requires incubation at a roughly physiologic temperature. Now, these biosynthetic reactions very often require ATP, hydrolyzable ATP, and that was true in this as well. 
as you'll see in the experiment on the right, if the reaction is conducted without e extra ATP, the signal is reduced about twofold. If the incubation is conducted in the presence of an enzyme that degrades ATP, likewise, the signal is reduced. Or if the incubation is conducted in the presence of an analog of ATP that cannot be hydrolyzed, likewise, reduced. Though, in all cases, these controls are not as low as a sample simply held on ice. So, in summary then, this reaction suggested uh, that the, the, the biosynthetic event required um, cytosol, required intact membranes, required ATP, and required incubation at a physiologic temperature. Now, the critical question is, can we show that the RNA uptake into vesicles formed in the test tube is, is sequence-specific? Does it depend upon some sorting event that distinguishes an exosomal RNA, such as MIR-223, from a purely cytoplasmic microRNA. So this is a simple experiment. Matt examined in, a two, in two incubations the uptake of MIR-223 with the uptake of a purely cytoplasmic microRNA, one found only in the intact 293 cells, an RNA called MIR-190. And the data for that is shown here. Again, now Matt sees, in this case, closer to 8% uptake of MIR-223 in an incubation at 30 degrees. Very little, maybe 1% to 2% in a control incubation held on ice. A cytoplasmic RNA examined in the same reaction is barely taken up into a detergent-sensitive ribonuclease-resistant fraction of membranes only slightly more than is taken up uh, in an incubation held on ice. So the difference between this data and this data suggested to us that we had reproduced in the test tube an RNA sorting event reflecting something about the, nor the normal pathway that cells used. Well, uh, encouraged by this, we then asked the next obvious question for us, which was, if there is some RNA selectivity, then surely some RNA binding protein might be involved in the sorting of MIR-223 RNA. And for this, Matt used the same experiment that I've described, only introducing a hook on MIR-223 that allow, would, would allow him to fish out MIR-223 after the reaction to see if anything came along into the exosomal vesicle along with the RNA. Here is, the, result, here is the, the outline of that experiment. It's the same experiment that you've just seen. Um, in this case, we used a biotinylated form where biotin is attached to the three prime hydroxyl of MIR-223 to produce a form of the RNA that has a hook that would allow us to fish out any proteins that adhere to the RNA in the course of this cell-free incubation. The incubation is conducted. The membranes are centrifuged. They're treated with ribonuclease. They're then dissolved in detergent. And then the proteins that, bo that bound to the RNA are captured with the biotin RNA absorbed on beads that contain a protein called streptavidin that binds very tightly to biotin groups. 
proteins that adhere to such to the beads are then eluded by treating the beads with a high concentration of salt buffer. The eluded proteins are then evaluated by mass spec to identify proteins that came along with MIR-223. Matt found a number of RNA binding proteins, but one stood out because over half of its sequence was detected in peptides that turned up in the mass spec analysis, and this particular protein had already been described in the literature to be secreted by cells, apparently in vesicles, exosomes, secreted outside of cells. Here's a paper that reported that discovery. Um, these investigators found this protein. It's called the YBOX1 protein, YBX1, was secreted by cells. They imagined that it may be serving as some kind of a, an extracellular mitogen contained within extracellular vesicles. And importantly for us, they showed in this paper that the YBX1 protein in the medium from these cells was insensitive to a proteolytic enzyme, trypsin, unless the sample was suspended in, det in detergent, just the, what you would expect if the YBX1 protein were contained within a, a detergent-sensitive vesicle. So we obtained uh, a polyclonal antibody against the YBX1 protein and asked two questions. The first is, can we show in our purification scheme the YBX1 protein in the vesicles immobilized on CD63 antibody-bound beads? And secondly, can we show that the YBX1 protein is packaged along with MIR-223 in the course of, a, of the biogenesis, cell-free biogenesis reaction, and dependent on the same conditions of incubation that we established for the packaging of MIR-223. These data are shown in the next slide. Let's focus first on the left. This is a, uh, an immunoblot of two samples, the sample of material bound to CD63 antibody beads and uh, a sample that did not bind to these beads. We used antibodies against several other previously characterized membrane protein constituents of exosomal vesicles and found, sure enough, that all of them can be detected by SDS page and immunoblot associated with vesicles containing CD63. And further, we could show that uh, the new protein that we had discovered in exosomes in our system, YBX1, sure enough, is also contained within these vesicles, CD63. Another membrane protein called flotillin, previously characterized as a constituent of extracellular vesicles, in this case, seems not to be in vesicles that contain CD63 because it was in the unbound fraction. This suggests that there may be yet another population of extracellular vesicles marked by this protein, but not by CD63. Now let's look at the experiment on the right. This is the same experiment that I've now shown you in several forms, the cell-free reaction that Matt devised. Incubations containing biotinylated MIR-223 were incubated with membranes and cytosol for 20 minutes at 30 degrees. The membranes were centrifuged and suspended in buffer with ribonuclease. The ribonuclease was then inactivated and the membranes were dissolved with detergent. 
the sample was mixed with streptoavidin beads to collect the biotinylated MIR-223. And then the beads were uh, incubated with sample buffer and run on an SDS gel, followed by an immunoblot. And sure enough, there is YBX1 protein coming along with the microRNA in this reaction. Importantly, when the incubation was conducted without cytosol or without membranes for 20 minutes at 30 degrees, the same process, the same processing revealed no YBX1 protein carried along for the ride. Further, if the incubation was conducted with all these components but held on ice at 4 degrees, little if any YBX1 protein is detected, thus the reaction requires some physiologic process. And finally, if the biotinylated RNA is omitted from the incubation, little if any is seen, obviously, little if any YBX1 protein is carried along for the ride. Now, surprisingly, in the course of our analysis, one very important protein involved in microRNA biogenesis, a protein called argonaut, was not found in our preparations. And we were curious why this was so. Let me highlight why this was such a surprise by showing you a cartoon that depicts the pathway of biogenesis of microRNAs, established by many investigators around the world. The microRNA is made as a precursor, a stem loop structure, which is trimmed in the nucleus, is exported into the cytoplasm, where it is subject, subjected to action by an enzyme called dicer uh, that uh, cleaves the, uh, the loop structure to produce a double-stranded RNA with uh, a duplex consisting of the mature microRNA strand and its uh, uh, complement. The complement is degraded. The mature microRNA strand is then captured in a complex by a, by a, a set of components called the risk complex, including this protein, argonaut, which uh, binds very tightly to the mature RNA and is presented as a complex uh, for control of messenger RNA translation in the form of RNA stability. And uh, most previous investigations have, have emphasized that this argonaut protein is an essential component of, of microRNAs, at least in its role in RNA, uh, the role of, of microRNA in, in control of gene expression. So the fact that we didn't find it was, was in, in exosome, in, in our preparation, was troubling. So we went back and looked very carefully to see whether we could, in fact, see argonaut in the exosomal vesicles. And our conclusion is it is simply not there. One piece of evidence is shown here. If one examines the crude initial high-speed pellet fraction of exosomes sedimented from conditioned medium from HEC-293 cells, uh, one sees the typical membrane constituents of exosomes, and one also sees the argonaut protein. They're seemingly abundant. In fact, there are publications in the literature that claim that argonaut is contained within exosomes, but unfortunately those publications are based on the evaluation of this crude high-speed pellet fraction. If this pellet fraction is fractionated just one step more by sedimentation on a buoyant density gradient, the argonaut completely 
disappears. There is no detectable argonaut, and in other experiments we've confirmed it simply isn't there, whereas the YBX1 protein is, as are the membrane proteins that characterize an exosomal vesicle. So this is a surprise and must yet be explained. Now, in the last experiments, I want to delve into what role the YBX1 protein may play in this process. What I've said thus far is that it's there, it's in the vesicles, it's bound to MIR-223, it is delivered into vesicles along with MIR-223, but what we really want to know is, is the YBX1 protein actually required for the sorting of MIR-223 and of other microRNAs? And for this, we turn to the creation of a, a, a null allele, a homozygous null allele of the YBX1 locus using the now classic technique of CRISPR-Cas9 knockout. We created both heterozygous and homozygous null alleles of YBX1. Shown here, the heterozygote continues to produce some YBX1 protein as detected by immunoblot, but the homozygote, which in this case is not a deletion, rather likely a frame shift mutation, produces very little residual YBX1 protein. The 293 cells missing the YBX1 gene grow, at least as far as we can tell, perfectly normally in the laboratory. So there's no overt essential function for YBX1 in normal growth processes. However, we can ask, importantly, is the YBX1 protein required for the production of exosomes? And more specifically, is it required for the sorting of microRNAs into exosomes produced by either wild-type or YBX1 mutant cells. So I'll show you two remaining experiments that address this question. This is an experiment that seeks to measure two aspects of uh, exosome biogenesis using our cell-free reaction. The top reaction is another assay that measures simply the production of exosomes as detected by the formation of exosomes that enclose a soluble enzyme in the cell-free reaction. And we found that cytosol obtained from the YBX1 mutant cell was perfectly active in making exosomes in our cell-free system compared to cytosol obtained from a wild-type cell. No defect in exosome manufacture in the cell-free system. In contrast, if we use the microRNA packaging reaction that I described, cytosol obtained from the YBX1 null is dramatically deficient in sorting MIR-223 into vesicles formed in vitro, whereas cytosol from control wild-type cells is perfectly active. In this case, packaging about 10% of the MIR-223. Another control was to take the YBX1 null cell and reintroduce a fresh, full-length copy of of the YBX1 gene, and then to produce cytosol from that cell. And that cytosol is restored to near, but not full, activity in sorting MIR-223 into vesicles formed in the test tube. Now, another experiment was to evaluate intact cells 
for their production of exosomes. We compared wild-type cells with YBX1 homozygous null and measured particles in the growth medium using a particle tracking device and found that the number of particles produced by YBX1 null cells is essentially the same as wild-type cells. Further, we evaluated the secretion of MIR-223 and another microRNA, MIR-144, in the normal NYBX1 null cells, and then compared that to the cytoplasmic accumulation of those two RNAs in cells missing the YBX1 protein. And that data are shown here. If we just look at the medium fraction, the condition medium, we find that both MIR-223 and MIR-144 are relatively depleted from the medium when the cells are missing the YBX1 protein. Whereas um, the cytoplasmic RNA, MIR-190, is not changed at all. It's still present in the cytoplasm in YBX1 null cells. Uh, If we look at the cells, the cells that sediment, uh, that are missing YBX1, we find that both MIR-223 and MIR-144 now accumulate in the cell at the expense of being secreted in exosomes. So both of these RNAs are dependent on the YBX1 protein for their packaging into exosomes based on the cell-free reaction and on the uh, intact cell assay. Now, the last data, I'm simply going to evaluate um, the major RNA species uh, that are found in exosomes that are produced from wild-type cells compared to the YBX1 cells. I want to share with you one more recent unpublished observation conducted in collaboration with an RNA expert at the University of Texas by the name of Alan Lambowitz. Alan has devised techniques for the detection of small RNAs, even those that have extensive secondary structure. And so um, Matt, in collaboration with the Lambowitz lab, had a look at the major chemically abundant RNA species found in normal exosomes produced by 293s and cells, and those produced by the uh, YBX1 null cells. So let's have a look. In the first instance, the most abundant RNA species that uh, the Lambowitz lab detects in our purified fraction are intact, full-length transfer RNA molecules. And surprisingly, these transfer RNA, uh, uh, this abundant species, is uh, quite dependent on the YBX1 protein, about a five-fold reduction seen in exosomes produced by YBX1 null for this uh, RNA species. There are two other um, more unusual RNAs uh, that are fairly abundant in these exosomes, the so-called Y-RNAs and vault RNAs, and interestingly, at least the vault RNAs, are similarly highly dependent on the YBX1 protein for their capture into exosomes. Well, let me summarize then. Um, We are at a point where where there are many questions that remain. Very excited. Uh, I'm particularly excited by the fact that we have this cell-free reaction that can be resolved, I'm confident, by biochemical fractionation to identify all of the components that are 
required for this sorting event. And I hope, as the years go on, that we can use this reaction to understand why the cell has gone to such considerable lengths to sort RNAs so selectively into exosomes for secretion. What are these RNAs doing? That remains a most important question. Well, let me then summarize our, in this case, relative state of ignorance, but what prospects we have for discovery. We believe that the sorting of microRNAs into exosomes begins in the cytoplasm with the interaction between proteins such as YBX1 and microRNAs such as MIR-223 to form uh, a complex. We have some evidence for sequence selectivity. I showed you that cytoplasmic RNAs are not engaged in this and can be discriminated in our cell-free system. In more recent experiments, we've been able to see some particular sequences on MIR-223 that are important. Um, now, we, now we, we want to understand how this ribonucleoprotein complex can engage the endosomal membrane. Are there proteins on the surface of the endosome that interact with this RNP, that bring it in, that deliver it into the interior of this uh, organelle? Is this the site of sorting, or is it possibly sorting to produce vesicles that may bud directly from the cell surface? So that is another important question. What is the membrane source? But once again, and importantly, the feeling that I have is that with the availability of this cell-free system, we are in a position to understand in some depth the mechanism of this reaction by fractionating the required proteins. And we hope then that that will lead to a further understanding of why the cell goes to such trouble to sort RNAs into extracellular vesicles. Well, let me leave you, most importantly, with the people in my lab in recent years who've done uh, so much important work. Uh, I'll highlight, just at the end, Matt Shirtliff, who's recently taken his PhD, but many other students and fellows in the lab who've made my life so wonderful at UC Berkeley. Thank you.